The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. Uh, My name is Dion Gribben and this is episode 13, Across the Border. Thank you for tuning in this week. And as always, if you have a comment for the show, if you have a question for the show, please email me at marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. But let's kick it off. And we'll start, of course, by looking at how the markets went this week. Well, it was a pretty good week in terms of market performance. The ASX 200 was actually up this week about 1.7%. In the US, the S&P 500 was up 3.2% and the NASDAQ was up 3.4%. So a fair bit better there in the US. In terms of market movements, it was a relatively mixed kind of week. The week started out quite good and we had some advancements in the market, especially in Monday and Tuesday, but it kind of started to peter out by the time we reached the end of the week. A lot of that end of week unease sort of comes from, sorry, I'm going to say it doesn't really come from COVID-19, but it actually kind of comes from a continuation on one of the themes that I actually spoke about last week, which was surrounding the trade tensions between China and Australia, but kind of more broadly speaking, also sort of tensions between US and China. On top of that, there's actually been some somewhat concerning news regarding more tension, or I guess a continuation of the tension between mainland China and residents of Hong Kong. I'm quoting here uh, from the New York Times, quote, China signaled on Thursday it would move forward with laws that would take aim at anti-government protests and other dissent in Hong Kong. It is the clearest message yet that the Communist Party is moving to undermine the civil liberties that the semi-autonomous territory has known since the 1997 British handoff. So yes, what started as a bit of weak of optimism surrounding COVID-19 treatment or potential treatment, potential vaccines, all that kind of stuff, it turned a little bit sour towards the end of the week as we closed here on Friday. Now, if you did listen to my podcast last week, which is episode 12, you would have heard me say that there was actually just over, I think I said 6.1, but I was slightly off, but over 6 million people on the JobKeeper And then you probably went to work that week and you told all your friends and colleagues that, oh, did you know that there are 6.5 million people in the JobKeeper? And guess what? You'd be wrong. But it's not my fault, unfortunately. No, 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 not at all. I I, I check my facts. I check my figures. But we might not be able to say the same for the Treasury Department and the ATO because they have had to revise those figures, actually. They've revised them almost in half down to 3.5 million uh, that are people that are actually on the JobKeeper. So not 6.5 million, actually 3.5 million. And the cost of the JobKeeper for taxpayers has now been revised from 130 billion down to sort of 60 to 70 billion. Now, what I saw when I was scrolling through Twitter was that the error came down to the way that businesses actually filled out the form. So they, they got this online form and they would it would it would ask them a question that said, you know, what's the number of eligible employees that you have or will be remunerated the $1,500 that the JobKeeper allows per fortnight? 
And the issue was that a, t- a ton of businesses, I believe over a thousand different businesses actually wrote a dollar figure instead of the actual number of employees. So they might, they might have three employees and, they, and they've written 4,500 as in the dollar figure and they should have written just three for the amount of employees that is covering. So I just have this, I just have this image in my head of some like tiny fish and chip shop telling the ATO like, yeah, I've got 4,500 employees. What of it? <laughs> so a, a minor, a minor accounting error when it comes to the treasury and the ATO there. I'm not, I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess the government and the, and the, and the treasury and ATO will, will be the ones accountable, but it's a, it's a funny one. Cause I'm like, Oh, maybe the form was ambiguous. But when I looked at it myself, I thought well, it's pretty clear that you're meant to put the employees in, but anyway, here we are moving on. So I'm a pretty big fan of the behavioral side of economics. And every week I'm looking for data on how people are beginning to respond to or at least in some parts of the world, beginning to respond to the easing of lockdowns from COVID-19. And there's a couple of different indicators that I've grabbed this week. The first is from Apple and specifically from Apple Maps. And you might remember in a previous episode, I spoke about Google mobility data. And this is a similar thing, but it's actually Apple mobility data. And Apple actually have a website devoted to this. If you're interested in checking it out yourself, it's just apple.com slash COVID-19 and then there's a mobility section. Essentially what they're tracking is daily requests for routing directions via Apple Maps. So these are people that open the Apple Maps app and you know punch in to get driving directions or they punch in walking or, or cycling directions or they, they do the public transport one you know to see when the trains and buses are arriving. And this is measured against the average of these type of requests on January 13. So they're, they're using January 13 as, I guess, like a baseline for normality. You know, it was, it was kind of post-Christmas, so we've come out of Christmas New Year, but it was kind of pre-COVID-19 scare, shutdown, all that kind of stuff. Now, what was interesting this week was that in the US, driving route requests have actually crossed back over that baseline by a couple percent. So edging back towards normality, normality, I should say. It's not quite at the highs that it was uh, in the sort of January, February period. But the other interesting thing is, is walking is, is still below the baseline. That's it's 13% lower. And for context, walking was down as, as low as 70% at a certain time. And I guess why this is significant and why I'm bringing this up is, you know, as states start to open up in the US, and we've, we've heard a lot, a lot about that on our news here, this is actually being reflected in reality of car traffic there. And of course, walking. And, and these kind of indicators uh, kind of correlate towards economic activity as well. You know, what's interesting though is when you look at this routing data is public transport map routing. So people putting it in for public transport, that's still down really low. And, and it kind of is down about as low still as it has been throughout the shutdown in the US, meaning people aren't using maps to route public transport. But on the other hand, driving, like I said, has recovered. So I'm not really sure what they mean. I mean, my my guess is that whilst people are driving, people aren't actually, I, I'm assuming that a lot of the public transport usage comes from workers and, and maybe perhaps those workers are still uh, working for firms that are allowing them to work at home, at least partially or fully, uh, even though the actual shops and stuff are starting to open up. If you switch up that data and look at Australia, we have in 
in no way at all return to normality. But the up, the indicators, those three indicators are starting to tick upwards towards our baseline. But for example, driving routing is, is still down 24%, walking's down 47 And just like in the US, the, the biggest lagger for us is actually public transport. So that's down 67%. And the more I think about it, the uh, there's a sort of train line near me and when that train does pass, it, it is like at least for the last couple of months, it has been just completely empty all the time when usually that would be, especially in say in like a morning or afternoon, you'd see commuters on that one. But the other indicator I want to talk about this week was actually from an article in The Economist and the, the article's called American Restaurants Are Struggling to Fill Tables Weeks After Reopening. And that's if you want to look at it yourself. And what this data shows is that on one hand, you can sort of make an order such as, all right, we're opening everything back up or, you know, whether it's staggered or not, but who cares? But so you can say, let's open everything up and say, all right, everyone come back. It's it's all good. But that won't necessarily mean that everyone does come back from a behavior point of view. So at, at least maybe not straight away. Consumers will still, you know, consider their own safety before actually risking their own health. And I guess it's, that's important to point out but the other thing is that worth even maybe potentially more pointing out is there are people that are also financially financially damaged from this virus and people who are unemployed and stuff so their capacity to just go out and spend on discretionary things such as going to a bar or, or going out to a restaurant is is likely hampered anyway a couple things from this article from the economist so overall, restaurant spending in the U.S. is down 51% for the year, according to the Census Bureau. But where it gets kind of interesting is they looked at data from Open Table, which, which kind of tracks bookings and seatings at restaurants. And it looked at uh, the fact that before any U.S. state had actually locked down officially, so before it was actually mandated by the state or the governor, but after the news that the World Health Organization had actually officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic, bookings were already down more than a third from average. So before the actual governors locked stuff down, people were actually sort of taking action into their own hands and actually uh, stopping going to these kind of places. And additionally, as these states have now started to open up again, the, the bounce back is, is not, you know, not quite instantaneous. It's, it's, it's quite slow. You know, in Georgia, for example, restaurants have now been open for three weeks, but bookings and seatings are down 84% still. So they're not just rebounding immediately back to, to where they were. Florida's pretty similar. It's down 80%. Texas down 75%. South Carolina, Carolina it's been open for two weeks now, and, and they're still down 67%. And I guess why I found that interesting and important is it's just reflecting on how that will play out here. I dare say similar data will be found here in terms of cautiousness to return to that normality, even if restrictions are suddenly lifted. But again, maybe I could be overestimating it too because in Australia, the virus has not done as much damage in terms of a health damage than, uh, than compared to, say, a country like the States. So we'll see what happens, but I think our states seem to sort of be taking the process of slowly starting to ease those restrictions. We're not going to go too crazy and, and uh, perhaps we will start to see a sort of slow return to that normality. But speaking of 
Australia. I thought we might also look at what's been sort of making waves on the market here at home. And there's a couple of things that stood out to me this week. And the first was Afterpay. It hit record share price highs this week. It closed the week out at about $44.51, sorry. And although I've already actually mentioned this, but just as a friendly reminder, Afterpay shares were actually only $9 in late March. So $9, you know, what really just a month and a bit ago, and suddenly now $44.51. And their surge continued this week because they actually announced to the market that they've reached 5 million active customers in the US and specifically had about 1 million sign up in the last 10 weeks. So that's purely US data, it's not including Australia. And so total US customers are 9 million at the moment. So when I said before that they've reached 5 million active customers, they classify active as people who have actually transacted through Afterpay in the last 12 months. So on the one hand, they are continuing their growth part their growth path, sorry, not just in Australia, but but overseas. And the overall shift to e-commerce plays into their strengths that we've seen over the years. But e-commerce itself has actually been extremely, uh, I guess, extremely well used over the last couple of months because of the pandemic. And it's, it's really one of the only ways to actually spend from a retail point of view. You know, we, we spoke about in, in previous uh, episodes how Amazon have had to hire tens of thousands, hundred uh, I think it was a hundred thousand plus staff just to uh, help out with this, just the massive demand through their logistics and supply. Although I noted in an article from the AFR that this continued increase in US customers is somewhat of a concern of analysts who are covering this. So they, uh, they believe they quoted Morgan Stanley analysts around how much of this growth in the US and spending in the US on the platform of Afterpay, how much of that is actually coming from government stimulus? Because over there, the, the citizens in the US are receiving the corona checks, as they call it. And the issue is this, is will this actually increase overall loss rates, which Afterpay reports? Because at, remember, at the end of the day, Afterpay, are kind of, they're the ones that actually foot the bill if they've got a customer that doesn't end up actually paying for the item that, or you know, doesn't pay for all of the item that they uh, actually purchase through that product. The other kind of big news, and this really came out towards the end of the week, was uh, Australian conglomerate West Farmers sort of revealed to the market and told the market that they've they've finished like a kind of strategic review of Target, which is of course one of their huge or one of the big retail department brands in Australia, and they've actually can be closing. A ton of them. It doesn't appear to be all targets. It looks like a, it looks like most will be closed or converted. The ones that get converted, they'll be converted into Kmart's. Now, West Farmers they trade on the ASX. Their stock code is WES, and they they own kind of iconic brands such as Bunnings and Kmart. But unfortunately, unlike Bunnings and Kmart's, Target actually struggles from a revenue point of view. It struggles to be profitable, and it has for quite some time now. I think I saw that. West Farmers was actually the share price itself was actually up slightly when they announced this because I think from shareholders' point of view they're probably thinking that it's a good thing to be getting rid of uh, the the target lagger I suppose in their portfolio as brutal as that sounds because this uh, this has real world um, real world impacts of course with you know loss of job 
Although West Farmers noted they, they're going to try and sort of, you know, relocate people to those Kmarts and then other brands like Bunnings and, and, um, and Officeworks and things like that. And I think when it comes to Target, from a, from a marketing point of view, they, it seems that they have struggled or failed, I guess, to really position itself in the marketplace well. Like it doesn't have the same brand power you know, as its sister, Kmart. And it's almost like Target doesn't really quite know what it wants to do itself. Like it doesn't really know it, what its its own image is. You know, on one hand, you've got something like Kmart, which is, is very, very well known now to be the, you know, if you want to get something that doesn't cost more than a dollar or you want to get a mug for your kitchen because one broke, you know, you can go there and get something that that looks and acts and serves a pretty good purpose and, it, and, it's, and it's pretty cheap. And it's, it's known really well for being that place. And then you go up all the way to scale to something like David Jones. That's obviously more of a, it's positions itself more as a high end uh, sort of more luxury kind of department store. I think it's important though to remember, and you see a lot of stuff saying, you know, COVID-19 takes another victim referring to sort of retail businesses and potentially talking about target but if anything the current environment is kind of the final nail in the coffin for businesses that some of them anyway i'm not talking about all the retail businesses but some businesses that were kind of on their last breath anyway and what i mean by this is that sort of retail big box department style market it's been tough for a very long time this it's not like it's just COVID 19 that's made it tough you know, Meyer and David Jones, they, they're not in exceptional circumstances either. You look over in the US, I think it was last year when JCPenney went bankrupt, which is a very similar uh, department store. And I don't think this is a trend that's going to go away for these stores, at least that's how I see it, unless potentially they reinvent themselves. But that's it about sort of Aussie markets. One more topic that kind of caught my attention this week was actually in the news, I believe it was on Tuesday that Joe Rogan, who sometimes these numbers shift around a little bit, but he's kind of arguably considered the biggest podcaster in the world or having the biggest podcast platform in the world, which is the Joe Rogan experience. And he announced a move to Spotify this week in, in that his podcast will be exclusively streamed through Spotify uh, from, the, from the end of this year onwards. And the Wall Street Journal uh, on Tuesday actually cited an anonymous source, God, that word's hard, isn't it? Anonymous. <laughs> so an anonymous source close to the parties and said that the deal was worth around $100 million, which kind of seems to be the price tag that everyone has actually run with who, who have actually reported on the news. And now when I read this information, I found it interesting and I, it was, yeah, it was insightful, but it, I actually had no intention of actually talking about it here on the podcast. But the more I actually sort of thought about it and the, but more more importantly the more I actually watched the market reaction to the news I thought it was interesting and I thought I'd raise a few points on it first it, I guess it's an example or another example of the recognition that's coming through on the value of these sort of non-traditional platforms because I think there's still yeah you know, there's still potentially people out there that that see someone or see a podcast like like Joe Rogan's podcast as being a little bit fringe or whatever, but his reach is enormous, right? So his it's much greater than traditional news platforms like a CNN or something like that. And 
And that's going to continue like that because TV audiences, their age group skews quite old. But it's interesting what I'm trying to say here is that you're seeing some sort of hard price tags. In this case, a very, a very high price tag on what this kind of content and what this kind of platform can be worth. And that's, that's really interesting. I guess on more of a negative note though, it's at least this is my initial perception it's kind of a further signs that podcasting shifting to be a bit more like Netflix. And, and what I mean by that is if you've got a podcast, you could be the biggest podcaster in the world or the smallest podcast in the world, but it operates the same in that you, you know, your content is created on a feed. You share that feed to various platforms and anyone can access it from there. And, it, and it's never actually mattered where you got that content from, right? So you could be, using Apple Podcasts, the app, and your friend next to you is using like an Android podcast app, like there's, there's a million of them, and it, it never actually mattered. It was all the same. It was all the same content. But now you've got the actual the biggest podcaster in the world, but he's only going to be available from one platform. It's, it's kind of similar or reminds me of how fragmented the video landscape is, you know? I don't know if you share the same sort of point or this opinion, but... I remember at the start, I, I still use Netflix. It's a, it's a great product, but I remember at the start, it felt like it was a lot better than it is now because now it's like you, you might think of, you might hear a TV show, like someone says, oh, you should really watch this movie or you should really watch this TV show. And, and you find out you it's not on Netflix. It's actually on Stan. And you're like, oh, I don't have Stan or, or it's on Disney plus or it's on Apple TV plus and, and you have one of them, but not the other and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not a, it's not a fantastic analogy because in this instance with the podcasting, Spotify actually does have a free version, but it's, it's the analogy is there because of this exclusivity that will be happening with this podcast. But the third point from a market point of view is Spotify is actually a publicly listed company, right? So you can actually buy shares in, in Spotify. They, they don't trade here in the, in the Australian stock exchange. They trade over the seas on the New York Stock Exchange. And what is interesting about this news is the reaction that it got from shareholders and investors on the market, which you could which you could see at the time. And on the day of the announcement, so Spotify shares actually began the day fetching around 161, 162 US dollars per share. And on Friday, so yesterday, when I looked this up and I was putting this information together, Spotify shares were trading closer to around $192.74. So that's, a, that's like a 19% increase in the share price since the news of this Joe Rogan deal went live. And what you can do, right, is there's this term called shares outstanding or the number of shares outstanding. And it's kind of just a fancy way of saying how many shares there are in a company floating around. Because remember, remember when a company is public, it's just divided up into many, many different shares, millions and maybe billions of shares. And so if you look at, this particular number, so the number of shares outstanding, so the number of shares in a company, and you times that by the share price, that's what that's what you get, what's called the market cap, or basically the, the value of that company, right? So you've got two shares, and they're both worth $50 each. The company's worth $100, for example. Now, if you apply it here in the case of Spotify, and in the case of when they announced this news about Joe Rogan, they actually went from a company that was worth about $30 billion to being closer to around $35 billion just from that share price movement that I was, that I was saying before, like around Tuesday, it was around the, 
sort of low $160, sorry, 161, 162 US dollars a share up to $192 on Friday when I looked at this. And so what you do, you, you can get that by getting the number of shares that Spotify have and times it by the share price and see, see the difference from Tuesday to Friday. So my point being there is, isn't that crazy? Like, so on the one hand, they shell out $100 million to just exclusively stream one person or one person's podcast. And on the other hand, the news has caused their companies to be worth $5 billion extra on the stock market. Well, that's it for this week. I, I didn't really have a specific long topic I wanted to talk about at all. So I thought that my my topics were kind of jumping around, but that's kind of how my brain was working this week. So hope you enjoyed it. No listener questions, unfortunately, but hopefully that changes and we'll get one in next week. Have a good rest of your weekend. Stay warm. Thank you for listening to the podcast. My name is Dion Gribben. Cheers.